It is good to be with you this morning, to be able to open up God's Word, feast upon it is my prayer. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. We were able to work through verses 1 through 18 last Lord's Day. And today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10. And please follow along as I read from God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Hear the word of the Lord. Now, as we have been working through this letter to the Hebrews, there is a major shift that occurs in verse 19. That therefore that you see as you're looking down at God's word really is a a, a pretty substantial shift that's happening in the course of the way in which this letter is composed. You see this in the writing of the Apostle Paul, for example, in in Romans or Ephesians, where in one sense it begins with the theological truths, the indicatives of what God has done, knowing who he is and what he has accomplished through his Son. Really, we have been working through the superiority of Christ for the first ten chapters, understanding how much greater, how much better he is. And as the Apostle Paul does in many of his epistles, when we get to verse 19 and then following the rest of this letter, we go from what he has to say about God and who he is, the indicatives, to now live it out, the imperatives to the Christian life. So thick, deep theological truths have been laid out before us through the first 10 chapters And he doesn't just leave us there and say, okay, now figure out how this applies to your life. We see as we move into verse 19 and and the following chapters, now believers, brothers and sisters, this is how, now that you have heard, you are to live. Therefore, in verses 19 through 21, he really is kind of just rehearsing Kind of, kind of the, the capstone, the, the, the peak of these theological truths. Hear it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he goes into, let us, let us, let us. So first, 19 through 21, if you have not been following along or, or maybe have forgotten up until this point of where we've been, with sin fully and finally atoned for, the barrier between a holy God and those who trust in him no longer stands. There have been many words penned, spilt by ink to describe the holiness of God and the old sacrificial system, the old ceremonial law, and how it was even possible for anybody to enter into the holy of holies in the tabernacle, the very presence of God where his Shekinah glory was present. And we read just how serious this was and how, um, how really there was only once a year where one man, the, the high priest, was able to enter into the holy of holies. But because of what Christ has accomplished, by faith, we can now enter into that place in heaven of which the earthly holy of holies was but a copy, but a shadow. Formally entering that earthly place would have brought death to anybody attempting to enter into the holy place lest you were the, the high priest and it was on the day of atonement. Everyone else, if you even began to encroach into that holy place, you would be struck down. But now a new and living way into the heavenly place enables us, sinners who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, now to enter into the very presence of God. The new and living way is not like the old, where there were rituals and ceremonies, but now it is by a person. Not just a person of some historical past, but the person of the present, incarnate, crucified, and exalted Son. It is in Him that we experience this new and living way. See, under the Old Covenant, there was a physical curtain that separated the holy from the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And that imagery is helpful for us because you see the curtain and realize there is something prohibiting me, a sinner, from entering into the presence of a holy God. Something must take place in order for this divide to be opened up. And what's so beautiful, just in these first few verses, 19 through 21, the author of the letter is recapping all that he has spent chapters digging into and expounding upon that by Christ's death, the curtain that once blocked our ability to commune with a holy and righteous God has been torn, has been opened up. We now, by grace, through faith in Christ, can enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. Really, this verse or these verses shed light on a familiar passage, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is helpful for us as we think about our own lives and as we seek to evangelize the lost. Because of his work, 
on the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, and then ascension to the right hand of the Father, we who are once far off, dead in our trespasses and sins, can be, by repenting and believing upon him, made alive, forgiven of our sins, be given the gift of eternal life, and now have access to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's also a reality that it's not open to anybody and everybody. That curtain, so to speak, is his flesh. And some think, okay, since he died on the cross, the, the curtain has been torn. It is now wide open for anybody and everybody, no matter what they do in this life, to just have access to the Father. We do not believe in universalism, that all people will be saved. There is only one way. And so, in, in a way, I want you to visualize that curtain still standing because Christ is the only gate to access with the Father. Without faith in Christ, it's not just open to whoever wishes to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. It is still only through Christ and Christ alone that sinners like us that deserve condemnation and the wrath of God upon us can experience communion and fellowship with a holy and righteous God. We enter through Jesus, our great priest over the house of God. So in a sense, what we see after verses 19 through 21 is doctrine applied. You have heard a lot of what has been spoken of, of the superiority of Christ. Jesus is better. You thought the high priest was, was good. You thought angels were great. Jesus is better. Now, if you have understood my theology, says the author, so to speak, therefore, in view of what Christ has done and making for us a possible uh, ability to stand before God's presence with confidence and forgiveness, then you are to do these three things. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may stir up one another to love and good works. So we're going to spend some time looking at verses 22, 23, 24, and 25. Beginning in verse 22, I want you to hear again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you were with us last week, do you remember what we heard in verse 14? For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, therefore, Draw near to God. Verse 17. I, this is God the Father speaking, will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, draw near to God. Countless people and places and events are off limits to the average person like you and me. You can't 
go barging into Governor Abbott's office and expect to just sit down and have a chat with him. Or just decide on a whim to walk in to a front row seat of the NBA Finals Game 6 and sit down courtside unless you had spent thousands and thousands of dollars and prepared in advance for that to actually happen. Or I want you to think of your favorite musician and the reality that you can't just walk backstage before one of their concerts into the dressing room and just ask them the meaning of one of your, one of your favorite songs of theirs. But it is different with God. Because of Christ, brothers and sisters, let us draw near. We have access to the Father through the Son. And it is not limited to location or time. If you have experienced God's forgiveness through His Son, you need to understand that you have been adopted into his family as his son or his daughter. And our father longs to commune and fellowship with his family. Let us draw near. Judaism, this is important for the original recipients of this letter. Judaism was a stay-at-a-distance religion. Aaron, the high priest, never took people with him into the Holy of Holies. Jesus does. This great priest of the household of God takes us with him. If we are a prayerless people, we are not demonstrating our Christian identity. The new covenant is a come and experience religion with what we see in this verse, a kind of a fourfold reality of God's sovereign work on a sinner's life, a true heart in full assurance of faith, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. God has accomplished so much for sinners through the work of Christ. Many times we, don't, we do not even begin to understand our new identity in Christ and if we don't, we will, I would say, we would, we, would, um, we would not be serving ourselves well in understanding what God the Father is inviting us into in this relationship with him. Ezekiel chapter 36, I think, verses 25 through 27, really helps shed light on what Christ has accomplished for sinners like us, you and me, in the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, let us then draw near to God. To draw near to God is what the Puritans used to call having communion with God. Feeling his love, knowing his commitment to our welfare, resting in the peace that he brings that surpasses all understanding. 
I want you to notice carefully that the essence of this privilege of drawing near to God is God. It's not the end game to just experience a joy that's overwhelming. Disconnected from the reality that the end of our our longing and desires is to actually experience God and enjoy Him forever. He is the end. John Piper wrote a book that we used to give out. We just ran out of copies and transitioned until we get more. God is the gospel is the title. A lot of times we think, oh, the gospel just saves me from what I would normally have to endure for eternity, which would be hell. And that's all you think about when you think of the gospel. Oh, I get to escape from damnation. Or I get to go and be with my family forever. Both of those things in Christ are glorious promises that God has given his people. But if you have neglected to see that it is all about him, enjoying him, having fellowship with him, that is what we are doing when we draw near Let us draw near. It's tempting for us to reduce our individual faith down to a daily routine instead of a heart that is captured by grace. If your heart is not awakened to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear, appear before him? If that's not your heartbeat this morning, make a heartfelt confession that much of your devotion is still for the things of this world and not for our Lord. God will give abundant grace to those who confess their desperate need for it. A.W. Tozer once penned these words, God's will or God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscience experience. It it is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. Let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So in contrast to our culture or society, we believe as Christians that there is a difference between the hope that is thrown around so cheaply and biblical hope. Biblical hope means that we have sufficient reason to believe that the things for which we hope for will actually come to pass. Do you see the difference? Society, culture uses the word hope all the time. I hope this comes true. I hope this happens to me. Biblical hope is assured confidence. I know something will take place. My hope is secure. It is is secure and anchored on a firm foundation. Hear from 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What is the basis of 
this unwavering hope that we are to have. Christians alone have true hope because the one who makes such promises to us is faithful. This is such an important verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do we just do that in and of our own strength? No. For he who promised is faithful. Many of us struggle when you interact with those who seem to be just really theologically dense, like in a good way. They, they spend a lot of time reading really thick books that others just use as kind of ways to stack things up for decoration. And a lot of times you think, man, I don't need to spend so much time dwelling on those deep things when you're missing out on the important things of life. And brothers and sisters, we all land at different ways, uh, different levels of engagement and, and, and deep theological study, but to think is part of our Christian identity and call. To think hard, to reflect about who God is, because informing ourselves on the truth of who God is is so applicable to our lives and how we live. A lot of times there, people are like, I want to choose life application instead of deep theological truths. And I want to submit to you, the more you seek and savor the deep things of God, it will directly impact the application of life. Don't say I want this instead of the other or in light of the other. The more we know about this glorious God, the better we will live out our lives as believers. How do we fulfill what we're called to do? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We anchor it upon the one who is faithful that has promised to us these truths, these realities. Because he is faithful, our hope, assured certainty of what is to come, can be fixed and unwavering because of who he is. Having addressed in Hebrews 19 through 23, more of the individual dimension of the Christian life by exhorting us to continually draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and to hold fast as individuals the confession of our hope, the author of Hebrews turns now to remind us of our duties required by the corporate dimension of the Christian faith. And all that comes in verses 24 and 25 is rooted in love. Here, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We frequently talk about our need for a personal relationship with Christ. And that's important. What we see in this passage is just how important the corporate dimension of the Christian life really is to our personal dimension of the Christian life. So again, we do not sacrifice the engagement with the corporate aspect of the Christian life only to focus on the individual aspect of our lives. 
you need to understand what we see in this passage is that the corporate aspect or dimension of the Christian life is so intricately involved, impacting our personal or uh, private individual walks as Christians. And I hope you see that as we look at these two verses. And being united to Christ, we are united to other believers in the church, forming one body where Christ is the head and we are the body, wherein the needs of others actually impacts our lives. So I don't know if you've ever thought about the Christian life like this, but it's biblical and to think otherwise is to misunderstand how this all kind of fits together. Christ is the head. He is the head of the church in which we as sinners redeemed by his blood get to participate and be a part of the bride. He is the head. We are the body. There is no part of scripture that disconnects the, the corporate nature of the bride to thinking that an individual Christianity is what you're called to be about in this life. If you have removed yourself and think you can do this just you and him without the bride, you are actually walking in disobedience as a believer. The stakes are serious here. We're going to see that the corporate dimension directly impacts our growth as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is emphasized here. One of the most important Christian virtues, a, a crucial fruit of the Spirit, is designed by God to awaken and sustain in us our souls as we meet regularly with other Christians. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I want to encourage you to read back through these verses. We began with faith and, love, and hope, and now we're looking at love. Now, I want you to think about this. It's, it's really remarkable if we can wrap our minds and hearts around this. The goal of, of the Christian experience isn't simply for, for you to be in isolation, striving to love more and grow in holiness. The goal, by God's design, is for you and I to be instruments in his hands in the life of some other believer spurring them on to love and good works. God has, has seen fit in his perfect design to say that it is crucially important for every believer to be part of a local expression of the bride of Christ because this is the means through which God has designed our sanctification and growth in the Christian life. And so if you have lived a life of isolation, individualism as a Christian, today may be the day of repentance and seeing that this is God's design to not do this on your own, but actually do this corporately together as brothers and sisters in Christ with him leading as our good shepherd, the head. 
ask yourself this question, do I really believe that I need encouragement to maintain my faith? The answer should be a resounding yes, but I, I'm afraid it's not always so. True believers share their struggles with other believers, and if you aren't together, there is no way to even know the struggles of one another. To pray for each other, that we would be spurred on to persevere. We talk about this, but I think we do so in passing as elders. We say, there's a, you know all the one anotherings in Scripture? It, it proves the reality that we are to be together in this pilgrimage towards heaven. But I want to actually let you hear from the New Testament the one another's. This is just one of dozens of one another's, but I want you to hear this and ask yourself, are any of these possible if I am disconnected from a local church? We are told to love one another, to exhort one another, to comfort one another, to show hospitality to one another, to forgive one another, to do good to one another, to serve one another, to submit to one another, to welcome one another, to admonish one another, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to instruct one another and to for for confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. In verses 24 and 25, there are strong words of, of judgment against those who are in the habit of neglecting to gather with the saints. We chose this as our grace verse so that we may memorize, meditate, meditate. We actually slow down and think about how this verse or these verses should apply to my life. What is God seeking to teach me in these verses? And am I being faithful to what these verses are calling me to? Not neglecting to meet together. We could begin by listing all the practical benefits of gathering together as a church. But honestly, we really don't need to. If God has commanded it, it is right and it is good and it is for us to obey. And so if you have struggled with, well, I don't actually think that I need to be gathering on the Lord's Day every week. I want you to do some business with God. I want you to wrestle with the passage. And really lay your life before the Lord and say, am I willing in every sphere of my life to make him Lord? Many of us love the Savior aspect of salvation. Christ is my Savior. I am redeemed. Praise be to God. What I deserve, he took upon himself. Now, instead of hell for eternity, I get to be with him for eternity. Do you also rejoice just, in much, just as much in the Lordship of Christ? Let us not neglect the gathering of God's people. If he has told us this, let that weigh upon your life, brothers and sisters. 
There's a reason why he has said it this way. He doesn't do things haphazardly. Rather, he does them on purpose in terms of how he created us, how he has saved us, how he sanctifies us, and how he sustains us. So this should demand our attention. Because of the new covenant, gathered worship for the people of God as a whole is a very complete different structure than where and how they gathered under the old covenant. Instead of God's presence being restricted to the holy of holies and only experienced by the high priest but once a year, God now dwells in all of his people by the Holy Spirit. And Christ is present when his people gather. Instead of performing elaborate series of sacrifices and offerings, Christians in the new covenant gather to hear the word, to pray the word, to sing the word, and to see the word in the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of this aims at building us up as the body of Christ in love and good works so that we may attain maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4 would be a good reference to go and look at. Notice the word translated habit, as is the habit of some. You don't cultivate a habit overnight. It takes time. It's not that difficult to develop a habit of neglect when it comes to the participation in the life of a local church. And this life, it is easy. We all know this. It is so easy to fill our lives, our schedules with activities that can totally get in the way of our regular attendance on the Lord's Day. And many of those things, we could sit down and have coffee and talk, are good and, and, and can be just fine for your life. But with the passing of time and the repetition of the same pattern of life over and over, you unconsciously find yourself relationally distant from the church and emotionally unfulfilled by it. There is a reason why God has ordained it the way he has ordained it. We are prone to wander. You might even discover that you will begin to regularly justify to yourself why you are neglecting the gathering of the saints the way you are. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on Hebrews, states this so helpfully. Please listen to his words. Unconcern for the well-being of the body, of which one is a member, is symptomatic of self-concern and egocentricity. It's, it's symptomatic of self-concern and egocentricity. Selfishness and divisiveness go hand in hand. For self-love breeds the spirit of isolationism. Self-love breeds a spirit of wanting to be isolated. To do life according to your will. You think you're on the throne and this is your little kingdom. He who does not love his fellow Christian fervently from the heart feels no compelling need to then associate himself with them at all. 
The gathering of the saints for corporate worship is vital for the believer because God has ordained it to be that way. The means of grace are not only vertical. So many times people think, I got this. I spend a lot of time with the Lord. It's just me and him and I'm good. The means of grace that God has designed is not only vertical, it is vertical, but it's also horizontal. That component is God-ordained, not man-made. We didn't think we're just clever and like, hey, you're doing that individually. Let's just come together on Sundays and somehow we're, we're going to benefit from that if we're all just kind of doing it together. Corporate worship is so integral to the Christian life. When we take the Lord's Supper, for example, it is a family meal where we are spiritually nourished by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we do it corporately. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 emphasizes this in several different ways in spots where he says a reference like, when you come together, when you meet together, do this. It is a gathered assembly in which we experience that particular means of God's grace, the Lord's Supper. Then I want you to think about singing. Can you sing by yourself to the Lord? Of course. We're not only making melody in our hearts to God, but we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You need the means of grace which are vertically focused but horizontally experienced with one another. I treasure our Lord's days when we get to sing corporately together. I don't know if you missed that, but there is ministry happening when we corporately are hearing one another sing the truths that are projected up on the screen of who God is and what he has done, that is actually a means of God's grace. Amen. If you're confused by the phrase means of God's grace, this, is, this doesn't mean I come to church, therefore I've earned my salvation, or that's me receiving salvation. A means of God's grace is he has already saved and redeemed us by grace through faith in his son, and he has provided means in which, channels in which we grow in our love and knowledge of him and our hearts love and knowledge toward, or love towards one another. That's the means of grace. So when we gather, there's so much happening that he has ordained. The proclamation of his word, the reading of his word, the praying of his word, the singing of his word, the seeing of his word and the ordinances, all of that is by design, his design for our good. Together, corporately, on the Lord's day, The New Testament pattern of church life is that believers would gather every Lord's Day and experience this blessing from God. Non-attendance moves you in the wrong direction. It makes light of his commands and harms his church in many ways and for many different reasons. I want to mention a few. Neglecting to meet, that we see in our passage this morning, deprives the soul of the means of grace, what I've just spent some time talking about. Our Christian life is not neutral. We've talked about this. You don't just set this Christian life on cruise control and expect to just kind of keep on cruising. 
we are either moving away from the Lord or we're moving towards Him. When you talk about communing with the Father, if you want nothing to do with the commands in which He has given you to partake in, to experience the means of His grace, how do you expect to be moving closer to Him in fellowship and communion? It is not a life where we just kind of press a button and we're just going to kind of roll and things will just kind of happen the way they're supposed to happen. We'll experience all that the Christian life has for us just by letting your hands go and saying, God, take the wheel. It is an active participation from the bride experiencing that fellowship with the head, which is Christ our Lord. And so, You may be moving slow, but you're either moving towards or away from him, and neglecting to meet deprives the soul of the means of grace. Neglecting to meet confuses young believers. I want you to hear this. I hope everyone who calls GCC their home hears this. We have people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Christ by the work of the gospel going forth, and the Holy Spirit doing a miraculous work on a sinner's life. Praise be to God. When you neglect to gather corporately on Sunday, it breeds confusion for a new believer who is looking to imitate other believers on how to walk out this Christian life. If I look over here and one Sunday I see a man that I really admire or a woman that I really look up to and I read Titus 2 and I understand, okay, the, young, the older is to pour into the younger and this discipleship is supposed to be happening and out of their mouth they may have said, yeah, it's important for you to come to church but I don't see them regularly attending. What am I to make of this? Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a religion of confusion. God has revealed himself. We know who we are in Christ. Our lives should not reflect confusion. Therefore, do not neglect meeting together. Neglecting to meet discourages regular attenders. One reason to gather regularly is for the sake of personal encouragement. And I want you to hear this. You are neglecting the vital function of encouraging and serving the body with the gifts that God has given you uniquely. He has blessed you with them by withholding those gifts being used for his glory and others' good by not coming. Likewise, You are preventing other believers, brothers and sisters, by blessing you and encouraging you and serving you by not coming regularly to worship. Because of their absence, non-attenders cannot possibly know when or how other church members of their particular congregation may be burdened by sin or suffering. You might be part of the email chain and you get some updates. That is not sufficient to know the needs of our body. If you are not gathering regularly, you will not be engaged with with even knowing how people are suffering and what they're dealing with and entering in to care for the needs of one another. 
It is not the work of the elders of this flock alone to exhort, but brothers and sisters too also are required and called to exhort one another and seek to stir each other up in faith and fear of the Lord. Neglecting to meet brings worry to your leaders. I want you to hear Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account before the Lord. As elders of this flock, you need to understand the weight, the gravity of what we just heard in Hebrews 13, 17 on our responsibility before God to give an account for your souls. Neglecting to gather corporately on the Lord's day, not being a regular attender, I will tell you, it is almost impossible for your elders to know the state of your soul, to in good conscience stand before the Lord and actually know even where you are spiritually. If you have been entrusted to us and you've covenanted with this local expression, you need to understand the worry and heartache that you bring when you are disengaged and not regularly attending the gathering of the saints. All of this matters. This, those, those few examples of the neglect to meet is just scratching the surface. And I pray that the Lord, by the Spirit, would illuminate the reality of what he's called us to be about as his people and how he has ordained and structured it for our good and for his glory. The way that this passage ends, it, it really embeds a sense of urgency. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I, I pray that I'll have an opportunity to pick this up as we finish out chapter 10. But I, I want to just humbly come before you and state that I'm not 100% sure the reference to the day that's being referred to here. Now, we have already heard in Hebrews 9.28, I want you to see that passage, if you've got your Bibles open. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Clearly, in my mind, a reference to the second coming of Christ. When you read the Puritans, for example, like Matthew Henry and Matthew Poole, they see the day in this verse, verse 25, referring to A.D. 70, where Jerusalem, the, the temple would be destroyed, an actual event that happened in history. And if you remember, the recipients of this letter, they would have received this before those events transpired. So I want that to just kind of sit with you. And then also in Matthew 24, Jesus foretells, good little homework assignment, he foretells within the same chapter both the destruction of Jerusalem's temple, which would happen in A.D. 70, and referencing that day later in the chapter, referring to the consummation of all things, the return of Christ. So within one chapter of Scripture, 
I see both the almost coming to happen in AD 70 of God's judgment on the people of Israel and also the reality of the second coming. Wherever you land, the nearness of Christ's return breeds that kind of urgency, an encouragement for us to one another well, to not neglect gathering together. As time moves towards the day, the author expects the church believers to grow in their commitment to the Lord. Let us, let us, let us, all that he has done, now walk it out. This is who you are because of Christ's work. Now live it out. I pray that we're encouraged by, these pass- by this passage. Let us pray. Father, we praise you again for the new covenant. The reality of what we now experience because of the finished work of Christ. His once and for all sacrifice has moved us from the position of condemnation and judgment to justified before God and now have access to the Father. You as our Heavenly Father. No longer are we children of wrath at enmity with you, but because of Christ adopted as sons. Now, the, the let us, we pray, you would stir in us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to take serious your exhortation, your word, as believers to fully submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ, whatever you have declared and wherever you call us, may we gladly, joyfully follow. And for those outside of Christ, those who are experiencing true isolation, individualism, Father, may they have eyes to see the kingdom of God where Christ, our King, invites sinners who are carrying the burden of guilt to experience salvation in his name, be adopted into a family where we no longer stand alone. May this be reality this day for those who are far off, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.